For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So welcome everybody. Uh, for new folks, I'm Taigan Layton, the guiding teacher of Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. I'm very happy to have with us this morning as our speaker, uh, Stephen Hine. Uh, many of you have heard him here before. Uh, Stephen is one of the foremost American scholars of Zen. Um, very prolific. Uh, it would take a half hour to just list all the books he's published. Uh, uh, anyway, he's been here before. He's going to be speaking uh, about one of our uh, most uh, appreciated uh, and, and traditional chants, the uh, Sandokai in Japanese, uh, Santong Shi in Chinese, and Stephen has done some, uh, has found uh, interesting Chinese commentaries on this that we haven't known about. Um, so, and also uh, just to say, uh, Stephen is use, using a translation that comes a little more from the Chinese understanding than the Japanese understanding we're familiar with. So it's a little different. But anyway, it's uh, valuable material for us. And thank you so much, Stephen, for all the work you've done and for being here again. Thank you. Thank you, Taigan, uh, for your uh, kind introduction. And uh, I always enjoy. Uh, well, Stephen, we're not hearing sound. Oh, I think I understand now. Uh, let's see. Well, Stephen, let's see. Will you say something now? Yes, I'm ready. Yes, I'm ready. I think we can hear you fine now. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Taigen, and uh, for the kind introduction. And I'm always happy to uh, be at um, Ancient uh, Dragon. Um, and I think the number of times has um, has been a little higher during during the <laughs> since the uh, pandemic began um, and the Zoom world opened up. So um, it's uh, always a fun opportunity for me to um, get a chance to talk. Usually, I'm talking about Dogen. Or something very related to Dogen, and of course, uh, Sandokai is something that is appreciated by um, followers of, of Dogen, and it is a text that is much uh, valued in the uh, in the Zen community, especially the Soto uh, Zen community. Um, as Taigen mentioned, uh, and let me let me uh, start. Well, I have a couple a couple of things to share on um to share screen uh but let me open up by saying that um i have a, a newer translation my uh I, I think that there's an excellent translation uh that ancient dragon has on the website and, and recites and there there are other translations like uh shobogenzo like uh Dao De jing like some other um, east asian spiritual classics uh there's many uh different versions my my aim today is not to um indicate that my version is uh, much different or much preferable to the other versions. Uh, what I'm trying to uh, show is not so much um, uh, what I have as a, as a translation, although I do, <clears throat> I, 
I did translate it with a co-translator, um, uh, Xiaohuan uh, Zhao, who's a postdoctoral uh, researcher uh, from China that's, that lives in Miami that I've been uh, working on several projects with. Uh, but uh, what I um, am trying to show, especially today, is some new commentaries that um, uh, that I've been working with. And so actually, let me think I better do the share screen. And excuse me for a second while I uh, make sure I got this uh, set up. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think you can see the um, this... Um, you can can everybody see this on the screen? Okay, so what I have um, here to work with, and then I'll give I'll kind of step back from this um, after introducing it and and make some other uh, prefatory comments before going back to this uh, text is um, a translation of the uh, forty four lines of the uh, Sando Kai by uh, Sekito, and I'll, I'm kind of kind of go back and forth between some Japanese pronunciations and some Chinese pronunciations. But anyway, this, this uh, is a famous uh, poem going back to the eighth century that has been uh, much appreciated along with some other poems. Another one by Sekito the, um, on the uh, grass hut and um, also the famous poem on the pressure, uh, precious jewel Samadhi uh, by Dongshan. Um, and, and these are some uh, Tang Dynasty poems going back to the early days of, of, uh, of Zen Buddhism in China that have been much appreciated and studied and continue to be uh, uh, examined and recited in, in Zen context today. The, um, what, what I'm trying to show here is a, a couple of commentaries that I came across and doing some research on the Song Dynasty material. So th this primarily goes back to the 11th and 12th centuries, where um, uh, the commentaries, I think, provide some interesting tools that can be used in interpreting uh, the poetry. So the main point is the commentary of capping phrases that is provided by... Uh, a famous monk named Shuedo. I'll say more about Shuedo and capping phrases um, as we go on. But as you can see here, for each line, there is a phrase in parenthesis. It's usually, uh, you know, three or four uh, characters, a short, cryptic remark uh, that Shuedo uh, provides as a kind of, um, not exactly a commentary, but in the general sense of the term, it's an annotation, it's a supplement, it's a thought-provoking um, idea uh, that he mentions for each of the 44 lines. So that's the main thing that I've been working on. Uh, because these are quite short and quite cryptic, and the uh, material is quite ambiguous, uh, uh, the Zen writing is, is always uh, ambiguous, Chinese poetry is, is the same, and, um, and, and so are the capping phrases. Uh, it, I'm, still, I'm still playing with the translation. So this is something that's going to be published soon, but I'm, I'm, I'm revising it. And, and Taigen already gave me a good suggestion for revision earlier this morning when, when we discussed briefly um, 
uh, this text. So I want to talk about uh, capping phrases and Schwedo and where that fits in. And then uh, we'll look at some examples of the capping phrases. But there are also a couple of other uh, Stephen, comments that Stephen, Stephen, um, are you able to make it the, the text larger on our projected screen? It's not it's not big enough for people to see. If you uh, can do that, I know it might be hard. If you can make it wider. Yeah, I think I can make it wider. The fonts are kind of small and the, the PDF file is an eye doctor test. Yeah. Um, you know, I, can you get an impression by looking, uh, or, or you could, if just a little bit bigger, oh, it's getting there, getting there. Is that a little bit bigger? Okay. Um, mm -hmm. if I, if I would focus on a particular line, could that be, is that something that is legible? Let's say. What do you, what do we say in the room? Can you read anything yet? Mm -hmm. Not really yet. Okay. Maybe the. Hmm. Can the people online see it? I think online it's fine. You can just listen. So online, yeah. <clears throat> yes. It's advantages. <laughs> but you can, you can just listen. We can be the oral tradition. Okay. All right. I'll. I will. Okay. Uh, do you get an impression from what I'm talking about? About the. Can you see the capping phrases in relation to the? So the capping phrases are in. Parenthesis after the main lines. Can you can you at least make that out with even if yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. All right, good. I just got a little reverb on the sound, but all right. Um, so anyway, for each line, uh, Schwedo in the year ten thirty eight provided a series of capping phrase commentaries. These haven't been um, translated into uh, English or any Western language, as far as I know. And um, there, are, there are some traditional Chinese commentaries. I haven't seen, although there are many Japanese commentaries, both from the medieval period and the modern period on Sandokai, I haven't seen a lot of commentary on, the, on these capping phrases either. So this is a kind of nugget that I felt like I kind of stumbled on and trying to uncover and, and brush it off and, and showcase this. Um, I also found in looking into the, the Chinese commentaries from the 11th and 12th centuries, a short prose commentary by a monk named Joifan um, Huihang, uh, who was a very, very important Zen commentator and poet and historian in that period. He's not so well known in, um, in the West compared to some of the more famous uh, monks from the, uh, that era of uh, Chinese Zen, but Historically, he does play a very valuable role. He wrote just a couple of paragraphs commentary, um, but it makes a few interesting points, and um, I want to come back to that as well. Um, and um, I also found two other things. One was um, a commentary that suggested dividing the text up into uh, 10 sections, <clears throat> to understand the thematic continuities and discontinuities or, or sequences in the way the, uh, the poem unfolds that are, that are somewhat helpful because of the, you know, my brain is kind of working here how to uh, modify the presentation I was going to give, given the um, uh, visual uh, issue that we discussed. So uh, I'll simply point some things out for now and, and, um, and come back to it a little bit later. Steve, and someone yeah. has a 
Peter expand it so we can actually now see it. So you you can you can count on our being able to read it. All right, fantastic. All right, thank you. And um, and then um, so so far, what we are talking about is three things that I briefly mentioned: the capping phrases for each of the forty-four lines, um, a short two-paragraph comment that is also um, useful. And then there's an analysis of 10 sections, uh, dividing the 44 lines of the original poem into 10 thematic sections that I think is somewhat helpful in understanding the way the uh, meaning of the poetry unfolds. And then there is also a final uh, comment from a Dharma Hall discourse or a lecture given by the famous uh, Chinese monk from the 1100s, uh, Da Hui, who's, who's known for his emphasis on, uh, on koans and, and various views about uh, uh, Zen literature. And let me just start with his little bit of ironic comment. Uh, he cites the first two lines, the great mind, the mind of the great sage of India transmitted directly throughout East and West. And then he says, how do you live up to this teaching from the bottom of your heart? Uh, and I think uh, what, what happens, you know, if we kind of recreate the atmosphere in those um, Dharma Hall discourses from the Chinese temples back then, a lot of times, the, the master would kind of throw out a rhetorical question and everybody would just sit there kind of stunned st- or, or a lot of times they were standing up. Uh, they would stand there kind of stunned. And then he said, okay, I'll go ahead and answer for you. So uh, <laughs> in this case, Dahue provides the answer to his question, which is how do you live up to this teaching from the bottom of your heart? And he says, cry out and beat the meditation cushion one time while saying, what do these words mean? So um, a little uh, irony there, which uh, may or may not be very helpful. What do these words, what, you know, what are these words are going to mean? Well, let me, let me uh, zoom out for a minute and talk about some more general points and then zoom back into the text, especially now that we can see it. So um, you know, I, I know probably some of you have, have studied this a lot and recited it frequently and, and for others uh, less so. But uh, and I, I'm offering uh, some brief interpretive comments here, which is that we could say that the uh, emphasis of the Sandokai is on non-duality, how to distinguish sameness from difference, how to see the harmony of sameness and difference, how to look at things from a non-dualistic standpoint that opens the door rather than closes it to multiplicity and differentiations while being able to rise above those differentiations and also while being able to plunge back into the world of differentiation for the sake of uh, dealing with uh, um, uh, various situations, including uh, teaching others on the, uh, relationship between the non-dual and the realm of multiplicity. So yeah, I was reminded of this um, basic idea the other day, and, it, you know, this is a very mundane experience that 
somehow sometimes can teach a, a bit of a Zen lesson. And I, uh, uh, in my in my administrative role at the university, we were talking about a new faculty uh, uh, moving into an office, and and we were trying to order a new uh, desk because uh, uh, she wanted uh, to set up the room a little bit differently. And I'm talking to her on the phone, and she's trying to describe. Uh, what she had in mind on the in the, in the room, and you know, we both uh, both of us uh, talking got lost in like, oh, a little bit longer. Well, how, you know, how much longer, and what does longer mean in the context of what you're saying? Because I'm sitting on the phone here, and I can't quite figure out what's going on inside your room, and the relativity of long and short, um, and um, and then you can resort to measurements. Well, I want six inches longer, but you know what what exactly that means and what that's going to look like is a very, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill, everyday, mundane uh, issue, that, uh, but that triggers off thinking about relativity and uh, differentiation and how do we resolve the issue and how do we find the balance and proportionality when we're looking at uh, the relativity of long and short and um, do we resort to measurement, which is somewhat factual, but yet still gives rise to interpretation, evaluation, opinion. Um, also, I, uh, the other day I was, uh, walking by a, um, uh, one of these canals in Miami that, that, you know, so I live in West Miami, not far from the Everglades. And we have a lot of these, uh, canals, some are smaller or larger, uh, running towards the, uh, Everglades. And the, the water is usually quite still. It doesn't look like running water, like a, you know, a river or a stream. It's quite still. And, you know, I threw a pebble into that very, very still water and was looking at the uh, ripples and, uh, you know, looking carefully, more carefully than usual at the ripples. I was I was surprised to see how long it took for the, the ripple, ripples to keep having a reverberating effect and moving down the waterway. And then the, those um, uh, those ripples in the water being uh, lit up by. Uh, a bright sun that, w- but it was also a partly cloudy day. So the shadows and the brightness were intermixing as the ripples uh, unfolded. And um, you know, another kind of everyday mundane experience where the this this idea of relativism, relativity, and contrast comes up. How do we understand one entity in a non-dualistic way without, or let's say, we must understand it by contrasting it with a, another entity that appears different from it. So um, to go back to one of the commentaries here, which is, is the prose commentary by um, by this monk, Jue Fan Huihang. As I said, he, this monk um, died in 1128, I believe, and he was very prolific. He wrote uh, quite a few um, uh, transmission of the lamp Type histories of the uh, of the leading uh, masters of the Zen school. He wrote a lot of poetry. He wrote um, prose commentaries on sutras. He was the monk that was um, primarily takes credit for the term uh, literary Zen and the use of poetry and koan interpretation in um, presenting Zen meditation. And Joey um, uh, says that he's. Um, He's thought deeply about the Sandokai, which contains more than 40 sentences. And he points out that a number of these discuss um, the relation between brightness and darkness, that relativity, that contrast. 
And I think if you add up the uh, 44 lines, um, uh, one way to look at it is that uh, uh, 12 of those lines, uh, 12 of the 44, um, deal directly with um, the contrast between brightness and and darkness. He he cites uh, a couple of those lines. He cites four of those 12 lines. Branching streams flow quietly. Uh, the true wellspring is clear and undefiled brightness. Branching streams flow quietly amid darkness. Uh, that's lines five and six. Um, and um, he also cites uh, lines 15 and 16. In darkness, lofty and ordinary words seem the same, and brightness, pure and impure phrases become clear. And he also cites... Um, um, uh, 25 and 26, beginnings and ends return to the same source. The valued and humble both are expressed. Actually, um, the uh, if you notice that last quotation, 25 and 26, doesn't exactly mention uh, brightness and, and darkness as the, as the previous quotes do. So um, why does he include that? Well, I, we have to think, I guess, that he assumes that the contrast between brightness and darkness that's being talked about literally in in 12 lines also uh, sheds light, so to speak, or, um, it, you know, is important for understanding some of the other implications of the poem that don't explicit, explicitly refer to the contrast between brightness and darkness. In the second, in the second uh, set of... Um, in the second paragraph here, he um, compares the poem to other famous Tang Dynasty Zen uh, bits of uh, rhetoric or uses of uh, expression or what Dogen uh, refers to as uh, ways of uh, teaching or explaining or preaching uh, the Dharma um, and uh, Dong Shan's uh, Five Ranks, uh, Linji or Rinzai's um, use of wisdom within words and uh, Yun or Unman's um, uh, view of uh, using words to follow the waves, that is to, uh, as a teaching device. And, um, and so he, uh, Jui Fun as a kind of, he was a kind of non-sectarian uh, figure at a time before the Rinzai and Soto schools became more, di- more distinguished in, in China and and then in Japan and, and often had uh, you know very uh, very hot uh, disputations of one another, um, uh, but so Joy Fun is is kind of looking at this poem as uh, part of the um, the wellspring of of Zen uh, literature and rhetoric that is uh, very compatible with the teachings of the masters of the various um, schools or what was, what was called at the time, the five houses of Zen. So, um, so again, what Jui uh, Fun is, um, is focusing on is, is that the, uh, that the core of the poem uh, is uh, the passages on uh, brightness and darkness. And that is what is key to understanding some of the other passages that don't explicitly refer to that imagery, but uh, builds from the sense of relativity and contrast 
in trying to uh, come to the uh, idea of the harmony or the merging of sameness and difference. So let's go back to the uh, poem itself. And let me talk a little bit more about uh, Shuedo and, and capping phrases. Um, so the, the poem is written in the uh, 8th century. Um, uh, this monk Shuedo uh, was uh, a leader of, uh, of Zen in the, um, in the 11th century. So it, uh, it's not only a couple centuries later, but it's a whole era later. The Tang Dynasty was the first golden age of, of Zen when you had the early thinkers and the um, early developments of the main schools uh, coming out. And um, but but um, we don't know that much about Zen institutional history because there a, a lot of that got lost historically and uh, was recreated by other later materials that often imbue it with uh, legends, myths, exaggerations, romanticizations, etc. So this has been a big debate in historical studies of Zen in, in the 20th and 21st centuries. But one thing that's uh, clear historically and very interesting is that beginning in the early 1100s, there was uh, the, uh, a huge explosion of uh, Zen literature. And this is what we're very much indebted to in studying today. And what fascinated me about the capping phrases on Sondo Kai was uh, the theme is merger of sameness and difference. And here we see the merger of the early, one of the earliest great examples of Zen literature by Sekito in, uh, in the eighth century, the Sondo Kai. And that is being merged or harmonized with the Song dynasty. 11th century explosion of Zen and uh, those two historical eras and two styles of teaching come together with these capping phrases on the, on the 44 lines. So what's happening in the early 11th century that's so important? Well, between the Tang dynasty that ended in the, um, in the early 900s and the, Song Dynasty and this explosion period, and now we're talking about the early 10 hundreds. In, in, in that century, Zen had become supported by the aristocratic elite and by the imperial government in China. Uh, for the first time, Zen was being put on a pedestal by the uh, secular authorities. And this was important because the um, aristocratic uh, intellectuals who studied uh, poetry, Taoist philosophy, Confucian ethics, were becoming uh, fascinated and involved in practicing uh, Zen uh, for, for the first time in Chinese history. And some of them eventually uh, became monastics and, and others were, were lay followers. And the lay followers were played a very important role because they often interacted with the monastics and had uh, Zen teachers and learned from them and, and had uh, debates and poetry contests and all kinds of interesting intellectual exchanges. And the monk Shuedo was right at the heart of it. So in the first several decades of the uh, 11th century, we had the uh, creation of what's called the transmission of the lamp records, which are 
historical um, biographies of the great masters in the various lineages. We also had the first koan collections and comments on the koans, primarily through poems and capping phrases. And uh, Shwedo was the key player, not necessarily the first, he's considered the second historically, but he's, in many ways, he's the first in the sense of being the greatest figure in the early 1100s to use Chinese poetry as a method of commenting on koans, merging the Tang dynasty and Song dynasty, and also the intellectual elites with the uh, Zen, Zen teachers and monastics, emerging all those realms in commenting on koans. The koans are usually stories, anecdotes, narratives, <clears throat> parables, paradoxes that were extracted from the transmission of the lamp records. So um, uh, Shwedo um, helped invent what we call koans. He actually didn't use the word koan, and, and nobody at the time really used the word koan, but koan was applied about a century later by uh, other followers of Zen. And it was a, a term that was borrowed from the legal tradition and immediately meant a, a detective investigation. And this was applied to spiritual understanding. And, um, and the capping phrases was also a merger of the literary world with the Zen world. Because in the, in the literary world, the, the poets would get together and when they took a pause from writing poetry, they would record these conversations with each other using very cryptic language that was impossible to understand outside of its own context. And so uh, Shwedo thought, this, hey, this was going to be a great tool to make remarks that are cryptic, that are obscure, ironic, but somehow help shed light on the meaning of koans and other examples of Zen literature, including the Sandokai poetry. So... Um, now, Shwedo also wrote the poems for uh, the Blue Cliff Record uh, koan collection. And in that Blue Cliff Record koan collection, his poems would say things like, you know, there's no suffering. Uh, there's no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy. Uh, he would say things like uh, to take advantage or take the advantage or to gain the advantage is to lose the advantage. Um, so I bring up those two examples of sayings in his poet, poetry commentaries on koans where he's using paradoxical phrasing to highlight the interaction of sameness and difference. So suffering is only known as suffering when it's contrasted with joy and vice versa. And but they are interacting with each other at every moment. So, you know, the, the sun and the shadows on the ripples that I saw uh, flowing in the canal is kind of an example of how the uh, emotions and the sensations interact. To gain advantage is to lose the advantage means when you get the upper hand, obviously, new challenges uh, uh, are there to take you down a notch at the same time. And I think uh, this captures some of the flavor of the poem. I'm not going to go in sequence and try to do the whole uh, 44 lines. What I want to try to do is to kind of point out some key examples and uh, show how the capping phrases 
are are useful. So let me skip down here to and and by the way, uh, these lines are all uh, couplets. So there's 44 lines, but 20 we could say 22 couplets. So the pairing of the of the beginning line and the second line of a couplet usually makes a statement. And uh, sometimes you have a couple of them bunched together. So you have four or six line sections. But here's one where we can see um, uh, a section of, uh, of one couplet or two lines. Let's look at 37 and 38. On hearing these words, and in the poem about, <clears throat> let's, we could say generally about non-duality, you grasp the source, you grasp the true source. The, the, uh, the Sandokai often refers to the source or the wellspring or the foundation. And the Chinese character is, uh, uh, which, which I'm showing here with my cursor, is a character that's, that uh, originally meant it originally referred to clans and family lineages and the fountainhead of a, uh, of a long lineage. And then it came to be equated with the lineage of Zen. And, and it, it means like a, a school or a sect in Zen, including Soto school. Um, and so that's a more specific interpretation where philosophically it means the source or the wellspring or the, or the fountainhead of of reality uh, as it as it springs forth, so you can grasp the source, but it's not based on your own principles. Here, I might change the word. I think I think the translation on your website says standards, and and I think maybe that's better. Uh, but it's not based on your own standards. So the individual standards do not apply because you have you while you have to grasp it for yourself. You can't rely on your opinions, your judgments, your evaluations that may be one-sided, partial, fixated, obsessed with a particular thing and not seeing things universally or from the, from the non-dual standpoint. So what does, um, what does Shueto add with the capping phrases? Well, I think when we first look at these capping phrases, they, <clears throat> uh, they seem in some cases kind of... Um, Maybe not so special. Maybe what are they adding? What what could we live without them? That's that was the challenge that I had for myself. Once I was so excited to to start to uh, work with them, but then I thought, like, are they really adding something? And I'll just put that out there because um, there's a little bit of a disconnect. I, I when you look at them, hey, maybe they're not so exciting. They're not blowing your mind. And there's other capping phrases and other contexts in the Zen tradition that maybe are a little more exciting, including some by Shueto, but himself in other contexts when he's commenting on koans. But here, I think he's just trying to add a little bit of flavor, a little bit of irony in some cases. Some cases he's being kind of a cheerleader and just saying, hey, that's right. Or some cases he's saying, you know, think about it a little bit. Don't take it for granted. Think about it a little bit more uh, deeply. And um, on hearing these words, you grasp the source. The source can't be known. So think more deeply when you are told you can grasp it, that you're, you know, trying to know the unknowable. And why can't you uh, base it on your own standards? 
Well, it's it's beyond discrimination. Okay, that's a I think that's a useful reminder to the reader not to take too seriously, take as a as a skillful means, take as a kind of discardable raft, uh, the the main words of the poem. Um, let's let's look at the um, at the next two lines because these are a um, a kind of simple, direct. Uh, moral instruction, <laughs> uh, but also um, very powerful, I think. Um, uh, if you can't see the way that's right before your eyes, how will you find the path right beneath your feet? Um, so uh, this is a part of the poem. As you can see, it's in the last uh, uh a uh, few couplets here that uh, there's a kind of transition from high-minded philosophy towards uh, telling um, trainees, disciples, novices, newcomers, getting them engaged and giving them some some basic home truths. The way is right before your eyes. Um, if you if you don't see that you can't take a step forward. And Schwedo comments, what for? Nothing's wrong. Again, he's adding a bit of an irony here uh, in, in a different way but th- than the previous lines. But it's a voice that is a reminder, don't take things for granted. Um, because he's saying nothing's wrong. Well, nothing's wrong with not um, finding the path. Well, obviously, that's, that's meant to make you think again. Uh, because uh, maybe you take that advice, the, uh, the poem's advice, uh, in too uh, casual or leisurely a way. Okay, so um, how much time do we have, Tygen? You can talk for another 10 or 15 minutes if you want, or we can just okay. go. Okay, that, yeah. So I wanted to uh, discuss a few other uh, passages. Um, and show how the uh, the capping phrases uh, work in some other passages. Now, let me go back to the idea that I was saying about the early 11th century. Some of you uh, may have read a famous book by a scholar, a good friend of uh, mine named Morton Schluter, How Zen Became Zen. And he talks about the history of Zen in China in the, um, in the, in the um, 1100s. And um, when, and that's that's the time when the split between Soto and Rinzai was becoming uh, a kind of heated debate, and they were kind of pointing fingers at each other. One was a dynamic path, they said. One was uh, a passive path, and uh, and those debates uh, lingered on for centuries and are still uh, with us today. Other other commentators from that period, somebody like Joey Fun, he tried to stay away from the partisan, sectarian, divisive conflicts and take a higher road. But my point here is that Schwedo was at a pivot point when Zen became Zen. I'm not saying Schwedo himself, but he was in an era in the first few decades of the 11th century when all the Zen styles of writing pretty much that we know today um, got built up either by commenting on older texts like Sandokai 
and koans, which were based on stories from that earlier period, or by inventing some new techniques. Now, let's take a look at the opening lines. Um, the mind of the great sage of India transmitted directly throughout East and West. Human sensations are beneficial or detrimental. The way does not, dis- the way does not distinguish um, ancestors uh, from the South or the North. So the first two lines indicate universality, comprehensiveness, spreading in all possible directions. One, another interpretation is that it spreads from west to east because that's uh, the uh, Bodhisar, uh, Bodhidharma's, uh, the first patriarch, the great sage of India's mission and pilgrimage to bring, to bring true to Buddhism from India to China. But in any case, it's spreading universally. And the next two lines are that uh, human sensations are bound to the world of duality and making distinctions between good and bad, useful and useless, beneficial or detrimental. But the way itself does not distinguish north and south. So simple but interesting point in these first four lines is east and west, north and south. These are irrelevant judgments. These are just human conventions and the way the Dharma uh, enlightenment, the true enlightenment is not bound by any of those distinctions. What does um, uh, Shwedo add? Well, in the second line, he says, let's look at Sekito or Shito's eyebrows. Well, the eyebrows are uh, a symbol in the koan collections of wisdom. The bushier the eyebrows, the, the greater the teacher is is a saying and you know a saying is um there's a famous koan where one teacher said you know i was i was uh preaching the entire summer retreat i got kind of exhausted and i wonder uh, you know my dharma brothers are my eyebrows still there or did they fall off in other words did i that i run out of things to say by the end of the summer retreat so i think that you know adds a little bit uh of an ironic comment you know um Shirto in that in those first couple lines is flexing his eyebrows and we can either admire them or we might sort of think to ourselves, okay, you know, what else were you going to say? So far, you know, you've you've given us some basic truths, but where are you going to go from here? Um, Lines five and six, the true wellspring, the true source. uh, The true fountainhead is is clear and undefiled brightness. I'm clapping along with that. But the branching streams uh, implying the various end schools, the various interpretations, the five ranks, the three mysteries, uh, and other uh, the four um, uh, shouts uh, from uh, Rinzai, all these, all these various teaching methods are flowing quietly amid darkness and proliferating differentiation. This is the beginning where the brightness and darkness uh, dichotomy, yet unity, or the Unity, yet dichotomy, um, is highlighted. And Shueto says, not quite integrated. So, uh, again, a bit of irony, cryptic irony. Uh, are we getting the point yet, uh, Mr. Sekito, Master Sekito? Let's go on. Um, uh, <clears throat> now, a- another um, interesting um I'll talk about a couple other passages, and then we can have some discussion. A couple of other ones. Uh, let's look at section 
beginning 13 and 14. Forms are known by their appearance. So open your eyes. Sounds always seem pleasant or unpleasant. Cover your ears. In darkness, lofty and ordinary words sound the same. Only the heart can tell. In brightness, pure and impure, or pure versus impure phrases become clear. So stay silent. So I think this is a very, uh, let me go through this uh, line by line, my interpretation. Forms are known by their appearance. Well, uh, the sensations, the sense organs that we have take in external forms. That's their um, that's their function. And um, sounds and sights are uh, always labeled according to appearance. Um, but as soon as we do that, we form pleasant or unpleasant impressions. Basic Buddhist teaching about the five skandhas. As soon as the sensations engage the external world, before we have a chance to even recognize it, uh, you know, what we might say subconsciously, prior to cognition, that moment prior to cognition, we've already determined whether we like it or not, or didn't like it, um, and whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So either way, cover your ears. Don't, so, you know, the ironic comment there is, well, don't let the impressions come in. If you want to stay detached, don't even let the impressions come in. But of course, that's not um, a standpoint that you can uh, rest upon. In darkness, lofty and ordinary words sound the same. Why is that? Well, one way of looking at it is that in the realm of darkness, you can't make the distinction. So this is bad non-duality. Unproductive non-duality is when you can't tell the difference between gold and yellow leaves, for example. And that's what I think number 15 is implying. In your heart of hearts, you do know the difference, but when you're wrapped up in fixations and delusions, you, uh, your judgments are not, are not working and you're going to mix up the, um, what's, what's valuable and what's not valuable. In brightness, pure and impure phrases become clear. In other words, you can tell the difference. Uh, so you can stay silent. So the irony here is that sameness, according to 15, is not productive sameness or unity. That's unproductive sameness and unity, where the blurred distinctions, where distinctions need to be made. Brightness, or the realm beyond distinctions, or the realm of non-duality, is the realm where you actually need to make, are able to make, and can make, Distinctions, and those distinctions have to be carried through. Okay, um, so let me look at one other. Um, um, set of passages for 41 through 44. And as I said a few minutes ago, the, this uh, point, uh, 
point or towards the end of the poem is where uh, Shito seems to, or Sekito seems to be addressing the novices, um, getting them engaged in in uh, more advanced practice. Stepping forward. After you do find the feet, uh, the path right beneath your feet, stepping forward is not a matter of going near and far. So east, west, north, south, near, far, long, short, those dualities don't apply. Singing high above. This is one of the most interesting capping phrases because what happens here is that um, he's evoking a phrase that's used in the musical tradition in China, and most of the well-educated monks and uh, the literati who were the intellectual aristocrats were very trained in music since they were kids. They knew how to play several instruments. They sang, they were in choirs. That was part of the uh, educational system. And singing high above means that you're trying to reach a note that is so pure and clear that only, uh, you know, in the legends from the golden age, the emperor could hear or the, you know, the, the high, uh, uh, the highest minds uh, amongst the poets of the Song Dynasty could hear. Singing high above means raising to a high pitch, but most people aren't going to be able to hear that pitch or benefit from it. So stepping forward is not a matter of going near or far, but in delusion you wander here and there aimlessly. That's chanting down low. That is providing the uh, useful means, the pedagogical tools, getting down into the mud, as um, as a lot of the koans said. Bodhidharma got uh, thickets and thorns all over him as he got down in the muck and mud uh, to, uh, to teach people uh, and raise them up from their delusions. Politely, I urge all those seeking wisdom. This holds true for everyone. Do not spend your days and nights wastefully. Spoken with sincerity. So that last line is quoted by Dogen in the uh, in uh, the uh, fascicle um, the, uh, which is uh, Kukuyo Shobutsu uh, venerating uh, the Buddhas. Um, it can also be translated as don't waste your time, don't spend your time idly. Use every moment so to loop back to Dogen again, one of Dogen's uh, poems, his, one of his Japanese waka, 31-syllable poems, says, uh, not a moment spent idly in 24 hours. And, uh, you know, that's something I reflect on quite a bit. I'm not saying I follow it, but I think about it would be nice to follow it. And um, he tips his hat to, to Sekito, in the Shobogenzo passage I mentioned, uh, venerating the Buddhas. And um, I think uh, to conclude for now, the uh, uh, point to me personally is that uh, I can see the affinity that Sekito was a forerunner of, uh, of Dongshan Tozan, considered uh, the uh, originator of, the, uh, of what became the Soto school, so Dogen's lineage. And there is that basic fundamental didactic principle. Don't spend your time idly. And are the 
then it raises the perennial question, is the literature, is the poetry, is the capping phrases, is all this rhetoric and discourse and rhetorical flourish useful or not? So I'll leave it up to you guys to you all to judge for yourselves. And I'll, I'll stop here and uh, we can have some discussion. Thank you very much. Sorry. Um, yeah, anyway, thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, very interesting, uh, provocative uh, presentation, and we can think about that in terms of our own uh, practice. Um, so, comments, questions, responses, questions for Stephen. Uh, anybody in the room, uh, hold up your hand. Or, and David Ray, you can uh, signal people on online. I, I will, and, and I have a question. Um, this is this is partly from a conversation that we've been having um, this week in in smaller groups, and I'm gonna gonna switch to. Um, gallery view for, for, the, for a moment. Um, it's about sort of duality and, and concepts like source and light, because maybe it's easier to think about something like sensory experience in a, in a non-dual way. I can say, oh, where's the hearing of a bird song? Is it in my ear or is it in the bird? And I can sort of get, you know, a little bit free of duality. But source and light both seem really linear. They seem really subject, verb, object. You know, the sun has got the light. It's the source of the light. It illumines the, the unlit thing. And, and, and the lit thing is, is the object. So I guess, you know, may, maybe one way to frame my question is, does, does Schwedo offer anything more than just saying it's beyond, um, beyond discrimination? Or and and I guess the the broader question is there is 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 there a, a further way to 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 think about concepts of source and light to help dislodge them from duality? Uh, great, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, um, so uh, you have a couple of uh, parts of that 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 are both uh, very interesting. Let's go to the uh, Shweda. Does he offer anything else? So you know, I did give that disclaimer at the beginning that. You know, these aren't going to seem so spectacular or or shocking, you know, especially when I was when I was working on them uh, and try to make sense of them and render them into English. I, a lot of times I was thinking, oh, my gosh, because you have to uh, these are cool. You know, I you like that one about the singing high, singing low. You know, you had to track down some interesting aspect of Chinese uh, culture and folklore um, and, um, and I think that one really works, but a lot of them, I, and I think that's true for a lot of the others. I'm not sure, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's me or maybe because they're so short. Um, but what, I, uh, they, they don't come across as that exciting. I'll admit that, you know, <laughs> but what I also found was that, um, and, and this will be published soon and, and I'm going to distribute this, um, and I'll, I'll <clears throat> the, again, the version I sent to you, as you know, needs some more revision. So, uh, not, don't send that one, but we can we can disseminate that in a week or two when I finish the revisions. Um, the um, anyway, I, I, I bear with it, I would say. And it's like. If you read them side by side and kind of, you know, um, let it let it sink in by osmosis over time, it it kind of grows with you. 
But your your great question is, you know, going back to the lightness, light and darkness. Uh, and and remember, I said that guy Jue Fun. That's what he picked up on. He said because, uh, and this isn't so much a question about Shuido in this case. This is about the poem itself. I think that you know Sekito's poem, the Sandokai, from from the eighth century, because uh, he builds that into it, and he's saying it now. Are they static terms? And, and <clears throat> he does go to the sensations at one point. And that's why I think the tool where we can divide those sections. So 21 through, um, you know, 21 and 22. And, and, uh, and they play, you know, that, and I think 23 and 24 does create a section, but most of the images on the uh, dark and light. Now they seem abstractions and they seem kind of one-sided, but that's the whole point to me. I think when you flip that around, the idea is that these these are not abstract. These are concrete um, images, impressions, sensations. These are sensations that we're working with. Light and dark are sensations that we're working with. Um, you know, the uh, in the in the Tsuki fascicle, the moon fascicle, very one of the most interesting fascicles I think uh, for this kind of issue in Dogen. If you reread that. You get a chance to read that or reread that one. Um, I think what, one thing Stilgen's trying to get at is like the moon, you know, we say, hey, the moon is bright. It's a full moon. It's a half moon. It's, uh, you know, there's a crescent of the moon. There's a, there's a new moon. And what does the moon think about those things? The moon has no idea what we're talking about. Because the moon is just the lunar body that's that's out there. And the light we attribute to it is because it's, you know, reflecting from another source. So light and dark are not outside of the sensations. They are the basic sensations that we've always had. You know, I'm in uh, being in Miami, you know, we, I, I always have to, when I'm on these zoom calls, I have to uh, close my blinds. Cause usually there's like a blinding light today. It's kind of cloudy. Um, so, so I don't have that, but you know, I'm always um, uh, seeing noticing that interaction of the light and dark, the shadows, you know, how much I want. So I think that's the basic sensation that we're always having and other sensations we talk about. Now, you know, Dogen liked this sensation of the pebbles in the koan of the pebbles striking the uh, bamboo wood, um, the monk who struggled to get enlightenment for 30 years and then, you know, swept, uh, was sweeping the rock garden and the, and the, and the pebble hits the bamboo. Bing. I'm enlightened. And um, another one where Ling Yun, a monk, was struggling for 30 years and he sees a peach blossom bloom. That's it. Now, even though Dogen is not a Kensho guy, he's not a sudden enlightenment guy, he's not for instantaneous enlightenment, he's for continuing enlightenment, uh, renewing it. Um, he does talk quite a bit about those two main examples of sensations as a key. So a bit of light interacting with darkness could be a trigger. That's that's my thought in responding to your question. Thank you very much. Um, Stephen, do you mind unsharing the screen so we yes. can? Yes, sure. Yeah. Uh, if if you're if you're in the cloud, you might use the hand raise function, and if you're you're in the room, I probably can't see. So you might you might just start I can talking. See if okay. Okay.
I see Jonathan. Hey, uh, thank yeah. you. Hey, um, so I, uh, you know, I thought it was really, uh, really interesting talk. Um, uh, so my, I guess my question is, um, you know, how far did, uh, you know, this concept of, uh, I think you mentioned Tang Dynasty and like non-duality plus a Song Dynasty emphasis on, uh, you know, the literary class, how, how far did this, uh, influence Dogen? I mean, I know Dogen always had that, um, uh, you know, challenge with, uh, poetry, right? He would say, oh, poetry is great. Or, or, you know, he, he said, oh, you know, poetry is useless or poetry is great. You know, he always had that kind of dynamic. So I was wondering how, you know, how deep is that influence between, uh, with Dogen from the uh, Tang and Song uh, dynasties? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. Thank you, Jonathan. So, um, the, um, yeah, I mean, Dogen was a man of words, right? I mean, Dogen was wordy <laughs> and he, he, but he used words. He used the puns and the word plays and the paradoxes and, uh, the inversions and reversions and negations and double negations and negating the double negations over and over again. And so that's what's so fascinating. That's one of the things that's so fascinating by Dogen. So he, you know, but at the same time, he doesn't want you to rely on them um, in, in, in sin fashion. But yeah, I think it's very interesting because Dogen, what's so great about Dogen in the, in the uh, history of Zen is that he was the monk who discovered, he was a Japanese monk who discovered all this Chinese material uh, really for the first time. Um, in the history of Japan and brought it back to Japan. There were other predecessors. There were other, you know, a few other um, uh, monks like Asai who went to uh, China before him. But um, but he was the first one to really work with the transmission of the lamp records, the koans and the poetry and the capping phrases and integrate that. And um, those are all so so those are all a way of getting a window, getting an opening, going down the rabbit hole to get further back to the origins of Zen, the six patriarch and the followers in those first couple generations, including uh, uh, Sekito and um, and his uh, colleagues. And so Dogen is I, begins the effort, I think, that that has continued for many centuries, trying to reach back to those early days that are so elusive kind of ungraspable, not only because the philosophy is is uh, challenging, but because historically we can't quite get a handle on it because we only know about it through the Song Dynasty. And so Dogen, what Dogen's able to do is to absorb all that himself and try to transmit that and transfer that to, to his followers very quickly. And, you know, in a couple of decades, he's able to uh, absorb it and, 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 um, and, Present it, package it in a way uh, that is that that has such enduring value. So we're still we're still using him as the window to open up that other window that he opened up. And then you know it's it's kind of like having uh, you know multiple screens up. I remember when uh, you know Windows. Some of you, some of the old timers here, uh, you remember before word processing when we had our manual typewriters and our electric typewriters and the first word processing in the 80s, and then boom, you know, Windows comes out as a new software, and you have multiple screens and multiple tabs going on at the same time. And so, you know, that's, I go back to that image, how amazing that was, you know, that flexibility that it gave you to work with all these screens at the same time. And that's what, that, that I think to me, that's a metaphor for what Dogen was doing, because he was reading the, 
he was reading the uh, about the original um, Tang Dynasty, but he was reading it through all these Song Dynasty commentators, and then trying to come up with his own language. Or in spite of himself, he came up with his own language because he tried to not only um, present it to the Japanese, but he had to translate it into words that the Japanese followers could understand. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Um, Doug, Liz, I've never heard, seen you not ask a question. <laughs> uh, I, um, is there a point you think where um, in the poem that captures best the idea that sameness and difference are themselves relative and that there's a need to recognize them as such and, and just work with them flexibly so that neither is a definitive statement about this is how the world is. This is, this is reality. It's not, it's not all sameness. It's not difference. We know that difference is delusive, but uh, so get beyond both of them. Um Yes. Yes, I think that's what, yeah, I think, again, another great uh, question. And um, if I understand what you're saying, you know, that's what you're trying to, uh, I mean, that's the Zen task to uh, create the, you know, disentangle the entanglement. So first you create the entanglement through these poems, and then you want to disentangle it and, and unravel it as soon as you have raveled it so to speak. Is that what you're saying? I think that's right. I mean, I think the history of Zen in this country anyway, is always to think that you have to stop seeing differences and just dissolve everything into mush. And I don't think that that's what Shuedo is saying at all. He's very, seems to be very much into recognize as saying we have to recognize differences, but they're not, it's not, uh, it's it's not absolute, and that carries forward even to our ideas of difference and sameness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to um, highlight um, the section that that touches that uh, best. And um, so let me. Um, well, I'll just read it here. I'm looking at the lines 25 and 26. the The translation on the Ancient Dragon website doesn't. Um, doesn't have the numbering, but this is, you know, it may, may, and, and, and the wording, of course, is a little bit different. But anyway, let me read 25 and 26. Beginnings and ends return to the same source. The valued and humble both are expressed. So there is the claim of a source. I think that's what comes through. Now, we can think of that, you know, with the I, I, again, uh, kind of um, wellspring or fountainhead or 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 um, uh, a physical image uh, that we have of of some single source out of which you know a kind of big bang, so to speak. Although you know, I just saw on the internet that uh, you know th- there was a you know it's supposed to be fourteen billion years. Now they say maybe it's twenty eight billion years ago, <laughs> and they're saying no, no, the big bang. Is not the theory, but I bring that up. I don't, I'm not an expert on, on physics or anything, but I, I bring that up because it's a little bit of a hobby of mine to read, 
to read up on black holes, <laughs> uh, to remind myself of how little we understand about these things. But the point is that we're creating a theory to that that's immediately unravelable. That uh, that's you know is, discards itself. The theory itself has to be self-destructive, self-de-inflating. And, and yet it goes back to the source. In the source, the valued and humble are both expressed. Well, we're always making the distinctions. I don't think we're ever going to stop making a distinction. And the, the Buddha, the, you know, Dogen and the, and, and the Buddhist teachers are making distinctions. There's, there's rank. This is a universe of hierarchy, of rank, of evaluation, of differentiation. So that that what comes out of that source is always going to have variability, unpredictability, irregularity, or at least a, a tremendous variety and multiplicity of options. Um, now, I lost track of whether, so which way were you leaning? Uh, I guess I, I lean toward uh, recognizing that uh, light and dark difference in sameness are like the back and front foot in walking that yeah that's that they, one of the lines there are functions our response to what is fundamental but we don't we don't have a let's say a perception of what is fundamental as soon as or at least as soon as we say um light or sameness is what's fundamental then we have uh reified that in reified, in a yeah. in a, in a Deceptive way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think you're putting it nicely. Uh, and I think the, you know, the bottom line for me is, again, the final section, work hard. And it'll take care of itself. Um, one thing, um, again, for the uh, old timers, you remember, um, uh, a singer, Randy Newman, um, he had the song. I forget the title of the song, but he, uh, there was a line in the song, tin cans at my feet, think I'll kick it down the street. Remember that line in that song? I can't remember the title of the song. Ty again? You're, you're muted. Ty again. I, I may be wrong. I thought maybe that was Leonard Cohen, but... No, I'm pretty sure it's Randy Newman. But anyway, you know, I uh, so you have to go back and be an old timer. Remember when in the old days people would get a can of soda and just throw it in the in the in the gutter, and eventually the the garbage people would clean them up. But for a while they were they were hanging out on the street, and you know, kids would walk down the street and you know, kind of play a game of kicking it, and it does it goes in a straight line, always squirts around from side to side. And I always think that that you know that's than not a moment spent idly. Even the idleness shouldn't be idle. But the idleness and the and the hard work, you know, of course, you know, what's life without detours? What's life without being idle occasionally and taking it off? But that, that can be as hard to work as anything else. So the reverberating interactions, the harmonizing and deharmonizing and reharmonizing of sameness and difference, I think, is is the ongoing process. And that and that, of course that's where we can go back to Dogen's um Ideas like yoji, un unremitting, continuing exertion. There was another hand I saw. Was it Nancy? Or maybe? Oh, 
Paula in the room, and I'm okay. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for your talk. Thank you. Um, I I wanted to ask you if you could um, extrapolate a little bit on the line that talks about when two arrow points meet. Yeah, it's a very concrete image that tends to be explained in different translations differently. Like the language around that that picture then becomes somewhat different. And I wanted to see again what your translation was in this model. Okay. Um, yeah. Let me let me make sure I. Uh, okay. So th- these are lines uh, thirty-five and thirty-six. Uh, very interesting physical images here. Things coexist like a box covered by a lid. Um, or uh, So let me read that again. Things coexisting like a box covered by a lid respond to one another like arrows meeting in midair. That, that's the passage you mean, right? Uh, so um, things coexisting like a box covered by a lid respond to one another like arrows meeting in midair. So two very interesting and maybe conflicting physical images where the box is, is, you know, static and still and covered and the arrows are um, uh, moving dynamic and, uh, and, and interacting with each other and colliding with each other. Um. And that prefaces a passage that I did talk about a few minutes ago on hearing these words, you, uh, you grasp the source, but it's not based on your own principles or your own standards. So things coexist like a box covered by a lid, respond to one another like arrows meeting in midair. Well, arrows meeting in air is often used in a, in a very positive uh, sense, I think. And I know uh, Dido Lori uh, uh, had used that as a title of one of his books. And, and, um, it, it, it sometimes is used in koans to refer to, uh, two, uh, two masters, uh, interacting with one another. So a lot of the koans there, there is a clear hierarchy. There's the teacher and a student, or, or sometimes the student outsmarts the teacher, but there's a winner and a loser, so to speak, not really a winner and a loser, but there's, there's a lesson that, that, you know, somebody's teaching a lesson, somebody's learning a lesson. Uh, whether they fully learned it or not is, is a question. Other ones, like there's the interesting one with um, the monk Guishan and the uh, and the female practitioner. Uh, uh, sometimes it's, her name is translated as Iron um, Grindstone, Liu. Um, and uh, I think they use a uh, an image like the arrows meeting in the midair there that the, or um, and some we talk about the, the master sharing sharing the staff or sharing a sword, and you know they're working together. And so on the advantage disadvantage, uh, because they're working in tandem with each other, there's no real need to you know t- keep score that way. And that's how arrows meeting in midair is often portrayed. So that's that's a productive challenge and uh, can what could seem like a conflictive interaction is actually contributing to elevating and, you know, giving rise to a higher level of understanding for both parties. Um, So I think, um, 
Um, the, uh, the previous line, things coexisting like a box covered by a lid, is like, on the one hand, there's solitude, individual, uh, contained, self-contained, independent. But no person is an island. So that solitary independence only benefits from interaction, exchange, dialogue, communication. And that's often going to take the form of challenge and conflict. And, um, and that because it's in the realm of differentiation and people are not going to see eye to eye, but when, when they elevate that process and, and by shedding ego and accepting the challenge, then, then both sides are elevated. And then, and then the next line says, and you know, and again, that's based on the source. So the source is the wild card here that I think comes up over and over again, because the source is the, is, is the basis for light interacting with darkness and, and all the other polarities. Um, I see uh, a hand from Nicholas. Hi, good morning. Um, this is basically just, I, I think it's a basic question. Um, it kind of goes to what Douglas was talking about, about how Zen is sort of maybe more obsessed with um, harmony. <laughs> Okay. But I, so, uh, so are these statements true? You can't have light without dark. You can't have sameness without difference. You can't have love without hate. And so sameness, you know, may be idealized, but difference is an equal part of our reality, which, you know, maybe gets short shrift. I don't know. And yeah, so relative truth is as real as absolute truth, yes or no? In how many words? 25? <laughs> uh, well, yes or no question. <laughs> okay. All right, you sound like a prosecutor there when you say, just give yes or no question. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of, you know, Trump uh, but stuff. No, so. no, I think your point, I, I, I'm sorry, what was the last comment you made? I, I've just been watching a lot of stuff on YouTube, like with yeah, Trump yeah, and exactly. lawyers and stuff. So Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, me too. <laughs> so um, we share that. But um, yes, yeah, I think you said it correctly. I mean, that's that is the point. So let's. But to, to try to take that point um, uh, one more step. Um, there's no, uh, like I said earlier, another way of putting it. There's no suffering. There's no joy without suffering, or right. suffering, and there's no suffering without without some joy. Um, there's no advantage without disadvantage and vice versa. Right. I, I remember uh, when I, I moved my family from uh, uh, the mountains of Pennsylvania to the tropics of or subtropics of Miami many years ago. And um, I was back in, in my hometown of Philadelphia. And, and you know, one of my aunts, who was, who was very well-meaning, uh, and she said, oh, is the move everything you wanted it to be? And I wanted to say, of course, you know, it's been only about 10% of what I wanted it to be. But, you know, that's good enough for now. Um, it, and I didn't say I didn't quite say that. So but, um, you know, I thought of uh, a simple expression that uh, I've heard many people use is it's, you know, life's a trade off. And um, the <clears throat> so uh, that's a simple way of putting it, but a, a little more. um uh, Zen way of putting it would be that um, 
the absolute and relative are, uh, you know, they absolutely coexist and they, you can't have one without the other. But it's the rising above what I call the rising above factor, the elevation factor uh, going up to the mountaintop factor, smelling and, uh, in, in, you know, inhaling the alpine air, as Nietzsche said. So you get out of the muck and mire and thicken and thorns of of the realm of differentiation, because that will get you trapped in entanglements, seeing, seeing delusions and deceptions and uh, giving into frailty and vulnerability. So you need to try to rise above that and get the big picture. But the whole point of the big picture in the Alpine air is not to stay there, but to come back to the marketplace in the 10 oxidating pictures and mm-hmm. to engage and re-engage and, and be part of that realm. So, mm-hmm. so the moral indication and I think this is, you know, what Dogen is saying over and over again is work hard, re-engage. This is my commitment, Dogen is saying, you know, I'm here to, to serve you, but I'm also here to uplift you. And the serving and uplifting are one function. The, from, the, from the disciple side, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the gaining from, gaining the benefits from, but yet challenging the teacher is what the, is what they're bringing to the table. And that's where the, the arrows are meeting. And that's exactly where the arrows are meeting in midair, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, that story struck me. It came up uh, the other night when we were talking at uh, Ancient Dragon. And uh, the, the student basically wanted to kill his teacher, right? Because <laughs> he shot an arrow at it. and The teacher turned around and shot another arrow and they met in yeah, midair yeah yeah, yeah. And, and i was just struck by like god people just start awful you know it's like <laughs> things don't change you know it's like they so, had like, internet trolls uh, back then too yeah i don't know if there's any like you know so did that guy have some kind of you know awakening after his teacher responded that way or um it, it was just a little i mean i got the story on on various levels but just on that level, it was a little disturbing initially to me. Well, because of the kind of resorting to violence. Well, just that people are so obsessed with power, you know, like the guy wanted to take over, you know, and so he's going to kill his teacher. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that imagery comes up and it was, um, you know, obviously in Dogen's era, Japan was the you know beginning of the warrior period with endless civil wars, and in China, right. they uh, there was always the, there wasn't so many civil wars, but there was always the threat of um, exile um, from the government if you were on the if you got on their bad side, and there was always there was there was always threat to stability for the for the Chan uh, monasteries because um, there were challenges from rival sects and from rival figures. And the, you know, it was kind of like the, the wild west where the new gunfighter would come into town and, and want right. to show, uh, show that he was the uh, top dog, so to speak. Um, right. But, um, but and it's yeah. mythology too, on a certain level. It What's may that? not be literal. It's mythology. Yeah. On, yeah. On I mean, we level. Had- it's not even literal maybe. Uh, yes, and we have the exactly, and we have the um, story of uh, of the master who would cut off the one finger. Mm-hmm. You know, he holds up the one finger, and the student imitates him, and he cuts off the one finger, and and the student is enlightened. You know, minus 
minus a finger. But, um, you know, one way I look at some of the mythology is that it was, there was in Buddhist asceticism and combined with some, you know, local Chinese and Japanese, um, you know, reclu- mountain reclusive um, disciplines, um, self-punishment or corporal punishment or physical, you know, some kind of physical punishment was not so unusual, maybe. Right. Uh, cutting a finger, burning, burning oneself. You know, we find we do find that in, in Buddhist traditions. And so I don't think Zen is in. Well, people do that now in various communities, yeah. you know, self-branding, etc. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think the Zen is kind of playfully using that. Without without endorsing it, but um, so there's uh, you know there there's another uh, story where the um, yeah the uh, <clears throat> a master you know feigns having his head cut off with a sword, and I can't I can't remember there there's a there's a number of stories in that genre. It'd be interesting to you know to kind of collect those stories and see see what the symbolism is in the end. But okay. there were to- there were hard times because. There, there wasn't exactly civil warfare, but there was um, persecution of Buddhism at different times in, in Chinese history. The threat was always there that the Confucians were really running the show and that, and that the Zen folks were up in the mountains, um, not, not following the strict society rules. And, and, you know, the, the, the uh, sword mythologically or, or really realistically could come down at, at any time. So I think in that context, uh, the Zen a, a sort of discipline was being developed. Okay. And so is difference, uh, by definition, associated with, like, shadow material, greed, hate, and delusion, or something? No, I don't think, I, I think not, that, not by definition. But it obviously opens the door to deception self-deception, delusion, one-sided thinking, partiality, fixation, mm-hmm. obsession. So that's what that's what happens. It's easy to get stuck in that path. It's easy to follow that rabbit hole and not mm-hmm. be able to escape it. So I think, you know, following rabbit holes is 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 a good thing and and uh in Zen and in most traditions because it it allow and on a certain level it allows you to explore the world of imagination uh and not and not mm-hmm. be stuck. But then it, it opens the door to a new um, kind of stubborn one-sidedness. So, so it's that continuing process of getting out from that. Right. Um, and you're saying the Alpine air helps us to see through. Well, this. yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, that, that's, that's a phrase that Nietzsche often used, like standing above, standing on that mountaintop. I mean, mm-hmm. John, temples in in china and and in japan and and you know dogen left the capital for the mountains right and so what was in the mountains so, you know you, you you physically you were higher up and spiritually you were in a place that um that the corruption of secular society had faded away but you couldn't avoid it totally because you needed uh you you wanted uh followers to come from the city you wanted uh, people to participate in 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 the temple activities from mm-hmm. uh, who 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 uh, you know you wanted a, a broad comprehensive community and I think that's what Soto Zen was 
was very good at historically in, ver in various ways. But uh, then how do you avoid getting stuck in the middle of that gr greed, fame, and fortune? These are always the, the mm -hmm. threats. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you so much. That was helpful. Uh, and uh, thank, you, Lewis, thank you. We are way over time, actually. Okay. Which is fine. Sorry. <laughs> no. That, yeah. When we have a special guest teacher like this, you know, we try to take a lot more time, but we do, uh, we'll do the four bodhisattva vows and the announcements, and then we'll have a service in which we'll chant the harmony of difference and sameness. So all of that's coming up. Um, thank you, Stephen, for uh, just presenting this material on these new comments and for everyone for helping with the discussion. So uh, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.